And for the rest of us here this morning, please turn with me. We'll continue our series. Second Timothy chapter 2. If you're using the Bible in the front seat in, uh, in front of you, um, we're going to be on page 935. And once again, good morning. For those of you guys, uh, if this is your first time, uh, an extra good morning to you online. Uh, it's good to have you join us. As we regularly do, we'll begin our time by reading the Bible together. But as we read, this is kind of a short passage. As we read this somewhat short passage, you have homework. I want you to pay very careful attention to God's instructions. To who? God's instructions to every Christian. As Paul explains how the church is equipped to endure suffering for his name. So please follow along with me in 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 8. Paul writes this, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And this is God's word. Please join me as we continue our time in worship through prayer together. Let's pray. Dear God, we come before you this morning confessing that it is only through the blood of Jesus Christ that we can stand before you today. And as we just read, guide us to constantly remember who you are and what you have done and what you will do. We thank you for the unbound gospel that guides us to the knowledge of you and salvation that only comes in Jesus Christ. We echo the praises of the psalmist. We thank you that you are near to the brokenhearted and you save the crushed in spirit. We pray for those both locally and globally who need your deliverance. Specifically, we pray for the people of Benin and the people in Ethiopia who are facing daily persecution for the cause of Jesus Christ. Lord, sustain the pastors and their families who are suffering from the rising conflicts within these communities and give them strength and joy to the members of these churches that have been persecuted and those that lost their families, their, their homes, 
their businesses, their churches, and all their belongings in these raids. Strengthen the church and give them boldness as they stand unrelenting to the gospel message. And for us, Lord, equip us as a church. Equip us to know how to stand firm with them. Lead us to faithful endurance and teach us how to be prepared for such endurance through your word and by the power of your spirit. Holy Spirit, give us fresh eyes as we look at this text and a willing heart that's obedient as we study your word this morning. Guide us, Lord, in the power of Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Consider the report from frontline workers in Benin, a small country in West Africa, and this was just from a few weeks ago. It was reported that while Pastor Ahmadin and his children were out at school, a small group of Islamic extremists, they went to his home. In this report, frontline workers explained that the men, while he was not home, the men attacked his wife with acid, pouring it into her eyes and forcing her to drink it. When neighbors heard her screaming, they rushed to the house, and the attackers fled. Pastor Amadin's wife was taken to the hospital, but, but died three weeks later. Frontline workers asked for prayers for Pastor Amadin and, and his children as they grieve. Another recent report reads on a Sunday in April, militants from the Ethiopian Orthodox Church attacked a Protestant church in less than a month. A Protestant church in that area had been attacked. And the attackers, they injured many Christians simply because they believed in Jesus. They also burned many buildings. One church leader said, we were attacked because of our faith in Jesus Christ. But listen to this. Listen to what this pastor says next. We are ready to accept any trial and persecution that comes to us because of our faith. Such powerful words. This is the dreadful reality that we live in today. People in Benin, Ethiopia, Bangladesh, Pakistan, China, Burkina Faso, Laos, to the people of the Democratic Republic of Congo and across the Arabian Peninsula, hundreds of thousands of Christians, they're being attacked and persecuted simply because they believe in Jesus Christ. And if you're taking notes this morning, this will be the first couple of blanks. But while many Christians endure suffering, Again, while, while many Christians endure suffering for the sake of the gospel, many others seek entertainment alongside it. Let me, let me read that again. Many Christians, while many Christians endure suffering for the sake of the gospel, 
many others seek entertainment alongside it. We see many churches today that peddle a weak and incomplete gospel instead of displaying the complete beauty of the gospel, nourishing them with the word of God, discipling them into Christian maturity, they supplement the gospel. How? They supplement with attractions, motivational self-help speeches, and they attempt to produce many, many emotions that will keep their consumers hooked on their product. Spurgeon likened this attraction model of the church growth to a carnival. He famously said, if you have to give a carnival to get the people to come to the church, then you will have to keep giving carnivals to keep them coming back. He continues and says, if men will not come to hear us because we preach the gospel, draw them by no other attractions. We need no attraction but the cross. An uplifted Savior draws all men to Him still. The devil has seldom done a cleverer thing than hinting to the church that part of their mission is to provide entertainment for the people with a view to winning them. See, gospel endurance these two stories that we just heard in the beginning of this sermon, gospel endurance, it's not produced in a church that uses entertainment and attractions to win people. It's not manufactured through the reciting of emotional stories from the platform or even trying to evoke emotional responses through heartfelt testimonies or generating artificial experiences to win them to Jesus. So where does gospel endurance come from? Gospel endurance is only developed in churches where Christians are constantly, constantly and consistently reminded of the gospel again and again and again and again. That's why we say gospel a lot here. <laughs> we talk about the gospel. Well, the obvious question arises, what is the gospel? The gospel becomes very abstract in churches today where people don't know how to explain the gospel simply because it's an easy word, right? But I think it's very important that we define what is the gospel. If it's worth enduring and dying for, what is it? What is the gospel? The gospel is God's story. We talk about this with the kids. The gospel is God's big story. It's the whole Bible. And we can break up the whole Bible, the whole gospel story, into five sections. If you've been with us on Monday nights, Wednesday nights, Friday nights, you know we practice this a lot. <laughs> so you'll probably remember these. What are the five? It's creation, sin. Uh, you guys are listening now, right? So creation, sin, promise, Jesus, and the church. If you're writing this down, I'm going to go e over each one of these. First, creation. In the very beginning, 
nothing existed except God. The Bible teaches us that God eternally, that means He always exists, and He exists as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, three in one. God is perfect, which means He never sinned. He was never created, and He Himself is love. And out of the overflow of His love, that's when God created everything. When the scene was set, He, he created the first man and the first woman. Their names were Adam and Eve. And they were created. Why were they created? They were created to know and enjoy God's perfect love forever. How? By trusting God's goodness and obeying His good word of instruction. By trusting and obeying Him. And in this very, very, very good beginning, Adam and Eve enjoyed a right relationship with God. That's creation. Next, sin. But instead of loving God, instead of trusting and obeying Him, they chose to doubt God. Chose to doubt God's goodness, and they disobeyed His good word of instruction. And this is called sin. This is what broke that good relationship that was supposed to last forever between God and humanity. Sin both enslaves humanity and it makes us guilty before God. And on their own, this is what makes it such bad, bad news, is that on their own, there was nothing that they could ever do. There was nothing that man could ever do to make their relationship with God right again. Creation, sin, promise. Genesis 3.15, right after that account, tells us that God made a promise to Adam and Eve that one of their descendants, that God was going to send someone to make a way that would rescue them from their sin. And for many, many years, humanity long awaited for their hero to arrive. Creation, sin, promise. What we see recorded in the Bible, and in the beginning of Matthew, we see that this person is revealed as Jesus Christ. Creation, sin, promise, Jesus. After much waiting at last, the hero of God's story arrived, Jesus Christ. Jesus, the Son of God, He is fully man, and He is fully God. He came, lived a perfect life. He took the punishment humanity deserved for their sin, and He died the death that they deserved. He died in their place. But the story doesn't end there. Three days later, Jesus rose from the dead, which displayed his power over death and his authority and his power to give new life to anyone who believed in him. And this new life, this is the great good news. <laughs> this is, new life is for anyone, everybody and anyone who repents and believes in him. And they will be in right relationship 
with God forever. Creation, sin, promise, Jesus, and the church. After Jesus resurrected from the dead, he spent 40 days instructing his followers about his plan to spread this great story, this grand story, to the end of the earth. First, he was going to give them his spirit. Secondly, he gave them a mission. And thirdly, he gave them another promise, that he was going to come again. His spirit was given, the church was born, the mission began, and his promise was fulfilled. Today, anyone that repents and believes in Jesus Christ is added to the church, God's big family, and shares in the mission to spread this gospel story to all the peoples of the earth so that they too will believe in Jesus and be in right relationship before God as a part of God's big family. This is the gospel and this is the grand story worth dying for. And for those who don't know Jesus, the gospel is the message declaring hope and salvation that, again, only comes from Jesus Christ. No other way. It is a message that our world and everyone in it are broken and that Jesus himself died to pay for sin and rescue all who come to him. But it's not just for non-Christians. It's also for Christians as well. For Christians, the gospel is this reminder it's a reminder. It's this reminder of what Jesus Christ has done in their place. This reminder of their present standing before God in Jesus. This reminder of their present power in the Holy Spirit to flee from sin and grow in the image of Jesus Christ. And this reminder of their eternal future. This is the same message of gospel endurance that Paul writes here in 2 Timothy. And I'm, I'm so excited that I get to journey with you guys in this passage, in this short but very sweet section of the Bible today. If you're new to the church, if you're new to Christianity, I'm glad that you guys are here. For those of you who may be new to the Bible, 2 Timothy is actually a letter known as an epistle. There are many unique things about this letter. In many of Paul's other letters, he wrote to churches, but here Paul is writing this letter to a man named Timothy. A pastor, uh, Timothy is believed to be a pastor, believed to be in his late 20s, mid-30s, when he received this letter. And like many of Paul's other letters, this letter expressed his love and his gospel instructions. Church tradition tells us that unlike the first letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, Paul wrote to Timothy here with the second letter from an underground chamber in Rome named the Mamertine Prison. History also tells us that there was this narrow hole, hole uh, in the ground that led from this upper chamber to this lower chamber, where the upper chamber served as a sort of death row, and the lower chamber served as the place of execution. The ending of this letter seems to suggest that Paul had already had his court hearing and expects that he will be put to death soon. 
With this understanding, it's believed that this is Paul's final letter as he writes these passionate exhortations and personal pleas to Timothy, his young protege. And throughout these pastoral pleas, these personal pleas, Paul points Timothy to that which is most important. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the first chapter, Paul thanked God for the gospel's work in Timothy's life. And he encouraged him to stand firm in the gospel despite any and all opposition. How was, how was Timothy to stand firm? Timothy was instructed to share in suffering for the gospel and to endure through this suffering. How? By the power of God. He is to not be ashamed of Paul who was appointed by Jesus Christ, nor is he to be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Put simply, no other gospel will or can save. Therefore, Paul tells Timothy, guard the gospel, guard the truth. In chapter 2, Paul explains that like a good soldier, Christians must not get distracted in guarding the gospel. Therefore, Christians must aim to please the one God who enlisted them. Like an athlete, there will be no no shortcuts in guarding the gospel. Therefore, Christians must remember the disciplines of their training to endure the mission together. Like a hardworking farmer, guarding the gospel is daily hard work. It's not glamorous. It's not always exciting. It doesn't receive much applause, and it's endless. But Christians must endure by committing to hard work for the sake of the harvest. And now here, in chapter 2, verse 8, Paul explains how Christians are equipped to guard the gospel and endure suffering by remembering the truth of the gospel. What is this text saying is that Paul is calling Timothy to remember three important truths, three of them, as he endures hardship for the sake of the gospel. Again, the title of the sermon this morning is Equipped to Endure. This is for everybody, every Christian. This is a call to remember. And again, we'll be in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 13. Let me talk about my goals here this morning. Uh, if you're not a Christian this morning, if you're exploring the Christian faith or looking for understanding, I want to encourage you, as I always do, that studying about the church through the study of the Bible will help you learn a lot about Jesus. So if you're not a Christian this morning, my hope for you is that you will not only witness God's loving instruction for His church, but that you personally will be drawn to Jesus, the power of the gospel. Christian, my hope for you is that you will be encouraged by Paul's heart for the church and that you yourself will reflect on how you've, you yourself have endured suffering for the gospel. And number two, examine your role and your commitment, your contribution to guarding the gospel here on 21st Avenue at Wildlife Baptist Church.
For this, I want to offer three important truths as Paul emphasizes three important truths that equip every Christian to endure hardship for the sake of the gospel. Let's hit our first point. If you're taking notes, this will be your next blank. Christians are equipped to endure when they remember the person and work, this is the blank, of Christ. If you want to put Jesus Christ, there's one line. You can totally fit Jesus Christ in that one line. But again, the first point is remember the person and work of Christ. You're going to see this in verse 8. I remember a comment from a friend who I brought to church for the first time. I always love talking to these type of friends after their experience. Uh, after our worship service, he smirked, and this is what he said. He, he said, you guys talk and sing a whole lot about this guy, Jesus. When do you move on to the next subject? He was surprised when I told him we don't. Church, Christian, brother, brothers and sisters in Christ, we should never, ever move away from the person and work of Jesus. We can talk about many different things, but we never move away from the work of Jesus, the Son of God, because we will always have a tendency to forget who He is, a tendency to forget who we were before and who we are now in Christ, and a tendency to forget the wonderful things He has done and promised that He will do. Every song we sing, every verse we read, every prayer we pray, it must remind us of Jesus Christ, who He is and what He has done, is doing, and will do. Look at the words Paul employed here in verse 8. Look at verse 8. <laughs> he instructs Timothy to remember Jesus Christ. Like many of Paul's previous instructions, this is a command. This is not some whimsical option for Timothy. And again, it is with this imperative that Timothy must continue to remember Jesus, who he is and what he has done. With this imperative, Paul offers two expressions right after it that are loaded with theological significance. Paul just explained that Jesus himself is the Christ. I was talking with a student once. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Rather, it is a title. It's a title that proclaims that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah that was promised long ago. In, in connection to this, Paul explains that he is risen from the dead, the offspring of David. Here, Paul is emphasizing both Jesus' humanity and his divinity, that he is 100% man, but at the same time, he is 100% God. And it's important to address that Paul isn't simply saying, Timothy, remember Jesus and the resurrection itself. The perfect tense of this word raised is emphasizing the ongoing results of Jesus' resurrection. Therefore, Paul is not highlighting the fact that Jesus raised from the dead, but that Jesus is Lord and that His completed action of being raised from the dead, it has lasting eschatological effects that are ongoing. Again, Jesus is fully man. He entered into His creation as a newborn, 
from the seed of Adam, through the family of Abraham, through the line of King David. This fulfilled the promise and the many prophecies of the coming Messiah that they waited so long for. But because Jesus is also fully God, Jesus lived the sinless life that we couldn't live. He died the death that we deserve. This emphasizes that Jesus is the king who has come, the king who has suffered, the king that was crushed for sin as it was proclaimed by the prophets. So in his humanity, he died, fully paying for sin. And in his divinity, he has risen from the dead, giving new life to every person from anywhere who repents and believes in him. And again, Paul is not instructing Timothy to remember the resurrection itself. He is instructing Timothy that death could not defeat the Son of God. Jesus Christ lived a human life, died a human death, yet he is no longer dead, but forever alive. Again, the grammar of this phrase communicates that he was raised and is still raised, and the effects of this raised king, they are ongoing. This is the truth of the gospel that Paul proclaimed when he said, my gospel. Paul told Timothy that he must share in Christ's suffering through the strength that only comes from God. And I like how John Stott worded this. The apostle seems to be saying, therefore, Timothy, when you are tempted to avoid pain, humiliation, when you're tempted to avoid suffering or death in your ministry, remember Jesus Christ and think again. And in the moments that we are tempted to avoid suffering for his name, we must rest in the sure hope of Jesus Christ. For we need not worry about what happens to us in this life, as Jesus has secured eternal life for all believers. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we have no need to fear death. Because our new life in Christ, we can echo the words of Paul, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. This is the truth of the gospel that we proclaim when we remember the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is not simply enough to remember the person and work of Christ. Therefore, my first exhortation in your notes, you must treasure, treasure who Christ is and what he has done. Treasure him. I have some questions that go along with this exhortation as you're taking these notes. Christian, speaking to believers here, do you live in such a way that the infinite value of Jesus Christ, it's seen in your actions? Are the ways that you participate here at Wildlife Baptist Church evidence that Jesus Christ is your greatest treasure? Or does your life and your participation in the church, is it just a shell? Giving the illusion that you want people to think that you treasure Christ. 
But in reality, you treasure something else more than Him. What could these things be? Perhaps you treasure old habits. Perhaps it's a relationship. Maybe, maybe it could be your marriage, trying to keep things together. Perhaps it's just the accumulation of more stuff. College students, maybe it's your degree, that piece of paper saying you finished. Maybe it's the promise of money, friendships, or maybe it's that you treasure the future promise of fame. This is the question. If you, if you lost everything, some people like my friends and family members in Maui, they lost everything. This is a question that comes to mind. If you lost everything like they did, if you lost everything today, and the only thing that was left was your relationship with Jesus Christ, could you echo the Psalter when he proclaimed, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. Could you say that? History tells us of the final words of Polycarp, an early second century pastor who was discipled by the Apostle John. On the day of his execution, the proconsul gave Polycarp a chance to renounce Jesus Christ, and if he did, he'd be freed. This is what Polycarp said. Polycarp answered, for 80 and six years, I have been his servant, and he has done me no wrong. How can I now blaspheme my king who saved me? What an amazing example of what it looks like to treasure Jesus. Church, do not grow numb to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is not some distant, dead, historical figure of the past. He is our living Savior. He is the promised descendant of Abraham, the offspring of David. He is the King of kings, and He has risen from the dead in order that we may have new life through faith and repentance in Him. Church, treasure who Christ is and what He has done, for we cannot endure without it. Secondly, Christians are equipped to endure when they remember the power of the gospel. This is the next blank in your notes. Again, remember the power of the gospel. In this section, Paul is explaining that Christians are given the endurance to stand and suffer when they remember and rely on the great power of the gospel through God the Holy Spirit. This was not some half-baked theory concocted by Paul. His current situation and his years of enduring evidenced the power of the gospel, which gave Paul the endurance to stand and to suffer for the name of Jesus. In another letter Paul wrote earlier, he writes, For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, with insults, with hardships, with persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul uses this word suffering to explain the hardship he has endured for proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
He identifies that he is bound as a criminal. This word criminal, a word that was used to describe what people thought of Jesus. We see that in John 18. But it was also used, this word criminal was also used to describe the two guilty men who were crucified beside Jesus in Luke chapter 23. With this understanding, some believe Paul is intentionally making the connection between his current suffering and Christ's suffering. Just as Christ suffered and died so that sinners will come to salvation in him, Paul is ready to suffer and die so that sinners will come to salvation in Jesus Christ. I want to then direct your attention back to verse 9. Paul uses a play on words to contrast the chains worn on his body with the unchained gospel. He writes this. He writes, bound with chains, but the word of God is not bound. You see that, that word play he uses. This is the ESV. If you have an NIV, you'll also see that it maintains this play on words where Paul says he is chained, but God's word is not chained. Paul's wording here in verse 10 clearly states that his understanding that, that he must preach the gospel and suffer because God has chosen his people for salvation. And it's important to note that Paul was not lamenting. He was not throwing a pity party for Paul. Neither was he complaining about his current situation in prison. Paul is explaining this timeless truth that opponents of the gospel, whether inside the church or outside the church, they may be able to stop the messenger of the gospel, but they won't be able to stop the message of the gospel. Nearly a hundred years ago, Stalin decreed that all Bibles were to be confiscated and all Christians were to be purged. His followers carried out this decree with vengeance. In Strathpool, Russia, thousands upon thousands of Bibles were purged and great numbers of Christians, they were dragged into gulags, put to death. They were executed as enemies of the state. But in the late 80s, after the fall of communism, missionary organization went into Strathpool to proclaim the good news of the gospel. After experiencing some difficulties in getting the new Bibles into this city, they heard a rumor that there was a local warehouse nearby where all those confiscated Bibles have been stored since Stalin's decree. So with the permission of local officials, this missionary team was told that they could take these confiscated Bibles of the past and they could redistribute them to the community. Several locals helped load and unload these Bibles from off these delivery trucks. One of these locals was a young man described by a reporter as a skeptical, hostile, agnostic college student who was there to earn his day's wages. But as they were getting more Bibles loaded onto the truck, this young man, he, he disappeared. He was later found hiding in a corner of the building, weeping. An article explains that he snuck off with a Bible, hoping to take one for himself. But what he found on the inside cover of the Bible 
It floored him. It brought him to his knees. Inside was the handwritten signature of his grandmother. By God's grace, this young man stole the very Bible that belonged to his grandmother. This woman had undoubtedly prayed for her family, for him, prayed for God's gospel work in this city and was persecuted her whole life for being a Christian. You can muzzle the messenger, but you can't muzzle God's word. This is the power of an unchained gospel. It is for this message, this gospel, that Paul was ready to endure it all, even to the point of death. And again, opponents of the gospel, again, they can stop the messenger, but they can't stop the message. It is clear that Paul understood his current sufferings in light of eternal glory, this eternal perspective of our current situations in light of God's great plan of redemption. It is therefore not enough to simply remember the power of the gospel, but my second exhortation is, church, you must endure, that's the next blank, you must endure hardship for the sake of the gospel. Endure hardship. This is not a challenge that Christians must go out into the world looking for a fight. Furthermore, it's not a challenge that every Christian is called to a life of martyrdom. This would be a misapplication of the Christian mission. Instead, this is a challenge that implies that Christians who live a life that treasures Jesus Christ, they will, they will experience hardship. Therefore, when hardship and suffering come, we must not avoid it. Christian, endure hardship for the sake of the gospel. Reflect on these questions. If you're a Christian this morning, think and reflect on these questions. In what ways have you, in what ways have you endured suffering for the gospel? Does your life reflect a daily denial of self, a daily endurance? Or is your Christian experience, as we've talked about before, is it mired, is it stuck in mediocrity? Are you simply stuck in a cushy, comfy life where faith and family, faith and marriage, faith and work, they never collide? Where you have become so good at compartmentalizing what happens on Sunday mornings here that it doesn't touch the rest of your life in the week? Christian, brothers and sisters in Christ, do you avoid suffering for the gospel? Are you not like that athlete that follows the disciplines of their training? Do you cut corners in your life, in your Christian life? Christian, instead, we must follow the example that Paul set before Timothy. Endure everything for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain salvation in Jesus Christ. Paul wrote earlier in chapter 1 that this endurance is only made possible by the power of God. This is the great news of gospel endurance, that Christians do not need to muster up strength and endurance on their own. How do they do it then? They rely on God's power through his gospel message, through the power of his spirit to endure opposition. So brothers and sisters in Christ, you must endure. 
hardship for the sake of the gospel, to show the surpassing power of God's gospel, that it belongs all to God and not to us. Finally, Christians, third point is Christians are equipped to endure when they remember the faithfulness of God. Remember the faithfulness of God. Paul's letters to Timothy have always focused on the church's response to God's faithfulness. The only reason why Christians are able to respond in faith is because God himself was, is, and will always be faithful. Therefore, when Christians remember God's faithfulness, they are further equipped to endure suffering for his name. The final section ends with Paul's reference to another trustworthy saying. Look at verses 11 through 13. You will see four conditional clauses. You'll notice that there are conditional clauses in the next slide because it will start with if and then we will, right? So, you will see four conditional clauses. Believe that this is possibly an early church confession um, and possibly even an excerpt from an early Christian hymn or a song. This section can be broken up into two sections. The first two stanzas describe the positive actions of the faithful who endure. And the last two stanzas, the last two lines, describe the negative actions of the unfaithful. So let's look at the first section regarding the faithful, the first two lines. The first stanza focuses on the conversion of the faithful. It reads, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. While some tend to connect this line with Paul's reference to baptism in Romans 6, it seems more fitting to connect all four stanzas, not just the first two, but all four with the understanding of dying to self in Mark 8. Jesus explains in Mark chapter 8 that if anyone would come after him, me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. The call to follow Jesus means dying to a safe, comfortable life, dying to all selfish ambitions, and dying to following our own ways. This is what it means for the Christian to deny himself, and in turn, we will also live with him. Likewise, the second stanza, it echoes this. It talks about the endurance of the faithful, that if we endure, we will also reign with him. Here, Paul again is drawing the connection between every Christian's faithfulness and their endurance through affliction and suffering. Notice the tense as well. The future tense in both of these stanzas, we will, seems to suggest that this tension of the Christian life, the already but not yet reality of every Christian. Upon first repenting and believing in Christ, every Christian in that moment begins, in that moment of confession, begins eternal life with Jesus Christ. But it is only until Jesus' return or their final breath that they will experience on that day the fullness of their salvation. 
And this is the reward of the faithful who endure eternity now and then forevermore with God. But let's look at the last two lines. In contrast to the faithful, the first two lines, stanzas three and four describe the negative actions of the unfaithful. This ends with a warning. It reads, if we deny him, he will also deny us. And as I mentioned earlier, this section connects well, just like the first two lines, with the latter half of Mark 8. Jesus explained here later on in Mark chapter 8 that whoever is ashamed of him and of his words, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in glory of the Father. In this third line, Paul seems to be addressing the apostate with this warning that those who reject faith in Christ in this life will be rejected by God in the final day. And likewise, the fourth stanza echoes the same warning to the unfaithful. It reads, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. For some, they wrongly view this last line as a means for comfort for the faithless. This is not a line of comfort. This continues the word of warning. With this interpretation in mind, though, if they believe that this is comfort, they believe that the statement, he remains faithful, is assurance to the faithless, that God still remains faithful because he can't break his promise, that if they're rejecting Christ in this life, that God will still be faithful, somewhat of a, a universalist salvation, that if, if we deny him, it's okay. God will still be faithful to us. And yet, this interpretation doesn't follow what we see in Scripture, and it doesn't follow the parallel structure that we see, as well as this theme and the rhythm of these four stanzas. It would be better then to understand that this final stanza is a continued warning that parallels the third stanza. And and with this understanding, Paul is saying that if we deny Jesus, if we reject Jesus in this life, publicly and privately, what happens? then he will be faithful to carry out his punishment, his warning, which is that he will deny the faithless. Why? Paul's comment at the end of that section, notice the indentation difference in your Bible, that he's commenting for God, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, cannot deny himself. My final exhortation this morning is, church, you must focus on that day together. Focus on that day together. This final section emphasizes the importance of enduring together as the church. Whether this was a memorized early church creed, confession, or a hymn, a song that was sung by the early church, what what is it? It's a proclamation They're proclaiming as the church, one church, that they have to endure in the present suffering. They have to have this present endurance that is necessary for this eternal reward. It was to be endured together now and enjoyed together in the final day with God for eternity. And yet, many churches don't like to talk about the endurance that is needed. Nor do they like to talk about the suffering and the challenges that will come for every Christian. In agreement, one pastor writes this, Worship services in many churches today are like a merry-go-round. You drop a token in the collection box, 
It's good for a ride. There's music and lots of motion up and down. The ride is carefully timed and it seldom varies in length. Lots of good feelings are generated. And it is the one ride you can be sure will never be the least bit threatening or challenging. But though you spend the whole time feeling as though you're moving forward, you get off exactly where you got on. Church, these, these types of worship services, these type of sermons, they do not equip the church to endure faithfully together. They are cheap knockoffs that will lead many to ruin. Church, when we gather, we do not focus on ourselves. We do not focus on our fleeting comforts and our momentary enjoyments in this life. Instead, what do we focus on? We, we focus on the fact that as followers of Jesus, we follow his commands. We deny ourselves. And what do we do? We focus then on that day Together, the great reformer Martin Luther famously said, I have two days on my calendar, this day and that day. For Luther, his only concern was how he was being faithful to the gospel in the present day, and he was concerned about being faithful, found faithful on that future day when Christ returns. And again, notice the we language of this hymn. We, the church, Focus on that day together because we are preparing each other to guard the good deposit that has been entrusted to us. Brothers and sisters in Christ, examine your role and your contribution to how we, Wildlife Baptist Church, focus on that day together. Are you here training and getting properly equipped to endure or are you simply here because it's become a comfortable routine? Are you concerned about the other Christians around you? It's good that we looked around and maybe waved hi to other people because you realize that this service is not just about you. It's not just about me. Are you concerned, again, about the other Christians around you or even online? that they're growing in gospel endurance and how you, each one of you, can help them grow in their faith to be prepared to endure? Or are you like the many who, they won't say it, but they've unofficially retired from participating in the church. They've retired from discipleship. Does your partic participation in the church now today reflect nothing more than a carnival ride, paying the toll, making sure that you have the same seat every Sunday morning, going through the same motions, and never actually moving forward or growing in Christian maturity. Church, we focus on that day together because we are preparing each other to be like good soldiers, disciplined athletes, and hardworking farmers. We focus on that day together because we are preparing each other to endure faithfully as the church, one body in Christ. And we focus on that day together because we are preparing each other that we will also live with Him in future glory. 
In conclusion, if you are not a Christian this morning, if you are exploring the Christian faith or looking for understanding, I am glad you are here. Studying about the church through the study of the Bible will help you learn a whole lot about Jesus, and we never move away from him. If you're not a Christian, my hope for you this morning is that you have not only witnessed Paul's great love for the church, but that you personally will be drawn to Jesus this morning. Christian, my hope is that you have been encouraged by Paul's heart for the church and that you yourself will reflect on how you've endured suffering for the gospel or maybe you haven't. There's grace there. Come talk to me. Come talk to Matt. We'd love to prepare you what it means to endure suffering for the gospel. And we also want you to examine your role and your contribution. There's no such thing as a retired Christian in the faith, retired from the mission. We want you to examine your role and contribution to guarding the gospel here at Wildlife Baptist Church. Every church in every age needs to remember the person and work of Christ. We must remember to treasure who Christ is. We must remember to endure hardship for the sake of the gospel. And we focus on that day together. And this is what it means to guard the gospel. And this is what it means to be his church.